on. Boom, there it is, ladies and gentlemen. Man, short-term rentals. You know, there's some people who do it, and then there's some people who do it right. And if you want to learn from somebody who's just kicking butt in this space, then you tuned into the right episode. Let's get this one on the road. Here we go. Shut up and sit down. Look, a business can give you everything you want in life. Prestige, wealth, freedom. It can also take everything away from you. This show is for those who are willing to take that risk. These are the real life stories of entrepreneurs. But before we start, I have one small favor to ask. Please leave a comment. It can be advice, critiques, tips, feedback, or share this with someone because your engagement is the most valuable and most powerful form of social currency. So thank you and welcome to another episode of Business Boss. Right, peeps, on today's episode, we got a special guest who is shaking up the short-term rental industry. For seven years, our guest has been a pioneer in this field, currently holding over 155 properties in his Airbnb portfolio across eight cities. But what sets him apart in his innovative approach to automation is allowing him to take a year off while his company continues to grow. Now, that's the dream, right? He sees the industry for more than just a way to make money, but as an opportunity to build a value-driven organization that stands the test of time. So let's welcome to the show, the one, the only, Sean Rocky G. All right, the party is now in session. Welcome to class. Well, Sean... Short-term rentals, man, um, I'm telling you, this is one of the hardest spaces, I think, personally, to be successful in. So many HOA issues, neighborhood issues, all kinds of stuff. How'd you get into this space to begin with? Yeah, thanks for that. And by the way, your intro was insane. That was awesome. Probably the best (laughs) podcast intro I've seen ever. So thanks for that. I just, I felt like I was like experiencing it, even being interviewed. That was really cool. Um, You know, surprisingly enough, I have not touched a HOA. Uh, once in my like eight years in eight cities of doing short-term rentals because I rent apartment complexes mostly and apartment complexes don't have HOAs. So I've never bought a piece of property. I just get a landlord to rent me their apartments, like a floor of a building and those don't have any HOAs. So it's really, really been kind of easy in that regard. All right. So we're going to talk some details here because that is a definitely a unique approach to what we're doing, to what this whole industry is all about. So how did you get started in this space? What was that What was that one little uh, idea moment, that little light bulb moment that was like, okay, this is something I definitely want to do? Um, you know how they say necessity is the mother of invention? I think yeah. that's really kind of, it's a smack me up across the face one day. My first business was in the newspaper industry. So I was a consultant for media, helping them reach millennials. Um, and that company actually was like doing seven figures back in 2013, 14. And I was hiring sales guys from all across the country and moving them to Houston, Texas. And so as part of their like hiring process, I wanted to level up and like hire better people. So I did relocation packages for like the best salespeople I could find to give them like eight weeks of rent for free at a furnished place. And so it was like my own version of corporate housing. And uh, about three of them moved out of properties that I had rented, like nearly all at the same time. So I had these empty apartments that had 10 months of lease left still Oof. like on them. So I was going to pay the rent on all these. And I actually legitimately didn't do anything with them for months and lost money for a few months. And then a friend of mine said that she booked an Airbnb in Austin. She's like, you should check out the website. I'm like, hold on, wait, what does it do? And um, so I put these empty apartments that I was using for my business 
um, on there just to kind of stave off losing money and they were profitable like instantly. So mm-hmm. I approached it not from a real estate standpoint, but from this like, I've got this inventory and I'm going to utilize it. And it was just straight business right from the beginning. So it's kind of, kind of the opposite direction that most people started. Yeah, 100%. Most people think real estate and they want to avoid the ownership aspect of real estate, but have the management and control. You already kind of had the control and you were like, I need to plug a hole here. This thing's leaking a little bit and okay, solution comes up. So let me ask you the probably the million dollar question. You start this business venture and obviously you're like, okay, I can put it on Airbnb um, but in any business, there's always the, what do I have to do on a daily basis? You're, I mean, in the intro I wrote, you were able to take off for a year without having to do any work. How'd you come up with the idea to like automate the company and, and get it going on its own? Well, uh, this was my third business to automate. So I was, had a lot of practice with, uh, you know, employee driven businesses. When I first got started, I was scrubbing the toilets myself, dude. I was like doing it all. So I was talking to guests, helping them check in, cleaning the toilets when they left, like all of it. And the business model is decently easy to automate to a degree because the majority of the work is either setting up the property, putting furniture in there and making it like listing ready. And then once you have a listing turnovers, like when a guest checks out, it needs to be ready before the next guest arrives. And that's pretty much heavily housekeepers. If you think like a hotel, the majority of their staff are housekeepers and then like a concierge at the front. And that's most of it. So um, yeah, it was maybe a year and a half ago I trained an assistant that was working for me. She was making like $500 a week when she first started. And within three years, she was making six figures. And I just kind of put the company under her control and said, peace, um, hit about 12 different music festivals um, and Burning Man and saw like a bunch of continents and just really kind of, uh, I really enjoyed it. It was great. Dude, the, the concept of uh, what happens when you start making money was one of those things that uh, started to fascinate me with entrepreneurs. And one of the best answers I've ever heard is the only thing you can really buy with money, I used to say is time. And now after hearing this guy say it, I thought that's more genius than that. He said, the only thing you can really buy is a memory. So go have experiences. Cause at the end of the day, even if you lose it all, those memories are what who you are at the end of the day, right? Like that's who yeah. you are. So go out and live and have those experiences. You got to do that for a year. Burning Man, that's pretty freaking awesome, dude. Yeah. Let me ask you about raising the value of these places. So you had these apartments and you wanted to make sure you use them and, and put them at Airbnb. And I know that when when we look at Airbnbs, we're always looking at the ones that have the nice view or have like that Instagrammable wall or something that sets them apart that makes them a little bit different. And you kind of mentioned like staging them and getting them ready to be rentals. Is there anything you do to like increase the value uh, for the average night um, on these on these properties? Or is it pretty much like cut and dry, like a hotel? Look, you get what you get and you just turn them over and keep them as full as often as possible. So there's like a mini history lesson in here. Um, when we started, anybody could have made money on Airbnb. It was like 2015. So you could just have a mattress on the floor and enough people wanted to do something new that you didn't have to have any design. Like I, some of my stuff looked like a dorm room. Um, and because of our price point, doing a lot of studio apartments, one bedroom apartments, we never had to go crazy. The Instagram walls, stuff we've never really had to do. We did set up a, a unicorn themed property in Philadelphia once just because we wanted to try it out. And it made double the amount of money that a normal unit would, but people partied so hard, we had to shut it down in six months. So mm. a lot of our listings were, were, were cost efficient, right? It was 
cheaper to get in. We got landlords to give us free rent. And the main part of our business model still to this day is we'll activate like a two-year or three-year lease. But in, in exchange, we get eight weeks or 10 weeks of rent for free. And so we're driving our costs down. We have all in-house cleaning staff. We're hyper cost efficient. But uh, there's been an oversupply probably within the last 12 months. And so even those properties, the ones that are typically $100, $120, $150 a night, even they need to have like an informed design style because there's just so many properties out there that for 4 or $5 more, you can get a place that actually has had a thought out design style. So one thing we've done with a lot of our properties, we flipped the dark walls like this, this black wall back here. We've done a lot of dark wall colors, a lot of patterns. Um, and you'd be surprised just by going dark with your wall color, you're already so different than most properties on the market. Because when people pick up a lease or a house, most of the times it's got like this basic white color, right? Like yeah. beige, white, off-white. So by painting a wall dark, you instantly contrast against the competition as a dollar for dollar, spending 35 bucks on paint is just as effective as spending hundreds of dollars on like fake plant wall, you know, it gets kind of the same output. Yeah, but still, it, it's making you different. I remember we yeah. uh, we stayed at this little uh, motel one time on a, on a road trip, and the walls were painted with different rock stars. It looked like posters from different rock stars. Like, he had yeah. Kiss on one wall. Like, it was different, dude. It looked cool. And it was it was one of those where people were like, hey, where is that? I'm like, you're never going to guess, dude. It's like this little spot in Huntington Beach. But it made a it made a, a, an impact, at least in, in our photos. And I'm sure if it was more like an Airbnb, people would want to know, get the reviews, share those types of things. I, mm -hmm. I think it, it definitely makes a big difference. Yeah. If somebody's going to get started in this space... Right now, you said, I mean, there's a history lesson. 2015 was different than today. If somebody's going to get started today, what are some of those tips that you can give people to, like, you know, advise them so they don't make the same mistakes, but at the same time, get them off on the right foot? Well, sure. Um, what's really cool about starting now is even though there's more competition, there are also more examples online. And just like any business, you do market research, right? You do competitor analysis. You check out everything. And so if you go search on Airbnb right now, you can find the listings that do well. And you can basically copy listings that do well because you can see their calendars. You can see how many nights they're booked. You can see what they're charging. And so by finding popular listings, it's really easy to emulate something that's just working because the, the barrier to entry is low. It's just coming up with an idea that you think will work kind of seems to be the daunting decision there. So yeah, you just get on Airbnb and copy what you see. Now, the watermark has raised in a few areas, right? Copying some of these design is a great base platform to get started on this. And especially if you do something less expensive than that other competitor, right? Like Uber comes in and does something, they do it well, but they did it expensive. And then Lyft comes in and does everything that they did just cheaper, right? Because they didn't have to mm -hmm. make any mistakes. So you can do that, right? But then there's a, a couple uh, topics that people probably should research. And this is a hospitality business as much as it is real estate. And so you'll want to learn how to give a guest an actual experience. And that's, I think, one of our big value adds is we pick up B-class properties, ones that aren't supposed to be special. We make them special with some you know, design, but then the guest experience is one of our biggest focuses. And we have a motto inside the company, which is you don't have to be intelligent to book with pad suites, right? It's not required. And so we meet everybody where they're at, you complete total patience for all of our guests. And it gives us five-star reviews with like less expensive properties, which is nice. Another one is probably uh, dynamic pricing. It's probably the big one that most hosts Airbnb hosts, Verbo hosts, they just don't understand, which is your prices should change every day, right? Every single day of the week or month is worth different money than the day before it or day after because supply and demand is per day, right? You could have a listing that's like $1,000 a night some days, 
But then the Super Bowl shows up and you can, you know, 4X that, 5X that, but then maybe some slow season when nobody's traveling comes in, you have to drop that by a third or by, you know, by a half. So dynamic pricing is a, is a, a level of, um, what's the word? Comprehension that a lot of hosts don't have. And that's probably the main thing people should study if they want to be competitive. Is dynamic hosting like built into some of these platforms or do you have to do it like completely on your own? Like if I, if I put a property up in Airbnb, am I just setting it up for one particular rate or like, does that something that you have to do like outsourcing? So Airbnb lets you set a weekday price and a weekend price, right? They also have something called smart pricing, which is their algorithm for demand, but it is trash. It's a, it's a terrible algorithm. Verbo which is Airbnb's biggest competitor, allows you to set a price per day of the week. So you can have a Sunday price, a Monday price, a Saturday price. Now, because supply and demand can swing moment to moment for also many different reasons and how full your own calendar is and how empty it is also changes what your prices should be. So even if, even if Airbnb's algorithm was good, right, and nailed it for the regular aggregate supply and demand, there's something in the industry called pace. If, if you've got a, a certain, like I've got 150 properties, right? So let's say, let's say there's one weekend that all of a sudden, like we're way more booked than we should be. Like all of our, like our weekend is just getting booked up so fast. The remainder of those listings, we need to jack those prices up because our supply is getting eaten up super quick, which means the rest of it will go for more. Now, Airbnb won't do that. And there's actually not a, a software on the planet that looks at your inner inventory and sees that you're booking up faster than expected and will raise your price for you. So no matter who you are, no matter what softwares you use, you should always pilot your plane in that way. And a lot of value like value um, generation comes from that. And there's this winter bust that everybody was experiencing. But those who actually survived and really did well were those who were manually adjusting their prices for demand. When demand got weak, they said, oh, my software is failing. Let me jump in and like by hand fix it. And so, yeah, knowing it enough to do some things by hand is going to put you in front of like 95% of the people who are on this platform. You said guest experiences are what's going to set you apart from a lot of the other places that are out there. And you guys are providing a really good guest experience. You also said sometimes you make your place so good that people are going to party like it's like it's 1999 and kind of mess up your place. How do you find a balance between the two? What is a good customer experience? But that also kind of protects your property so that the turnover is natural turnover and not like insurance claim turnover. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's, there's multiple aspects here, but, and a lot of it becomes predictive, right? So when you have a studio apartment, people don't throw parties in studios, right? There's just so many houses out there that have the space to invite a bunch of people over that you don't really have to worry about it so much. So what houses tend to do to avoid parties is when you do price and you drop your prices, raise your prices, if you go below a certain threshold last minute, you can get some last minute bookings that could be parties. So there's something in the industry called lead time, which is like how many days in the future somebody books your place. If you have bigger properties that are at a party risk, you want those booked in advance. So that way nobody finds your place available like for next weekend and then books it for a party. Because mm -hmm. somebody who's throwing a party is not booking six weeks in advance. They're not pre-planning a party six weeks in advance unless it's a party that they plan to promote. Um, and some of my students actually, they have these, these networks within the cities that they're in because they have a lot of houses. We do a lot of apartments, so we don't have to worry about this. But like, for example, in Houston, one of my students, he's in this network on social media where people track um, to make sure no one's throwing parties at the properties. And it came across like either Snapchat or Instagram where somebody's like, hey, here's the address for this pop-up party. 
and he snagged it in time. They tried to have 3,000 people show up at his house, but because he was in this like local network where everybody's checking each other's properties to make sure there's no parties, he was able to get the cops there before people even started showing up. So for houses, he, he wasn't booked last minute, and then they booked last minute, right? That was the first thing, right? You don't want your houses booked last minute. Second, uh, being involved in these little local host networks for major cities uh, is a great measure of prevention, and that's what saved him. Dude, that's huge. Uh, I work with high schoolers, and come prom night, come uh, homecoming, they all want to do an after party, and they're high school seniors, so you know they got one in the bunch that's 18 years old and wants to throw that party, and they're going to go mm -hmm. with the Airbnb thing. And I'm always like, dude, don't do it. You're going to lose your deposit. You're going to have to pay for cleaning. You're going to get caught. It's not going to be the experience that you think it's going to be. Project X style works because it was that person's house. It doesn't work when you do an Airbnb. It's a huge difference. Yeah. All right, so you are literally teaching people how to do this sort of thing. One of the things that uh, astonishes me about your business is you're, in, or you're across eight cities. So how does one pick a location? It's one thing to pick a, a unit, right? So we talked a little bit about houses and apartments. What about actual geographical locations? What's a good place to start if you're going to start doing the Airbnb game? So I would say Midwest to give you a fast answer. Um, the reason why I'm in the cities I'm in is because when I was in the newspaper industry, I had newspaper contracts like the Philadelphia Inquirer, Dallas Morning News, Houston Chronicle, you know, stuff like that. So I got into a lot of cities because I was already there for business. And then because my business model was built for urban, like built for inner city, I added in places like Austin, Texas, right? Just because we were built for it. But right now, you'll either compete with people like me who know it all, right? We've done this for a long time. Maybe even they're venture backed. There's a lot of private equity in short-term rentals right now. So if you go to a big city like here or Chicago or Boston or anywhere with tons and tons of populace, the level of competition will be higher. But if you show up to somewhere in Nebraska, Iowa, Idaho, Utah, uh, Alabama. One of my students, he's like, where should I go? I'm like, go to Birmingham, Alabama. And in four months, he's the biggest host there. And he's making money hand over fist, right? Just And then next thing you know, AirDNA comes out a year later and says, Birmingham's the best city to be in based on like, you know, like percentage margin. Because in these smaller cities, there's no good hosts, but there's still plenty of travel. People travel mm -hmm. these cities all the time. But a, like a company that's got a bunch of venture back capital, they want to be in a city that they can have 5,000, or maybe not 5,000, but 500 or 1,000 keys, right? They want to go deep in scale in city to city. So they're not going to go to Quad Cities, Iowa, where maybe they could you know, have 40 doors max, right? Because they want deeper scale for the amount of money that they've raised. So for hosts that are getting started, places like the Midwest are so easy for anybody who's paying attention. It's actually really easy money. I didn't know that there was a lot of money from private equity in here. I knew private equity was buying up a lot of single family homes. I, that I knew. I just thought they were getting the regular rate of return like a normal rental rental would be just because of the model of having a long-term lease versus having the turnover on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. So, I mean, you're talking like deep, 5,000 keys in a pretty geographical area. How much money is going into this from like some of these equity firms? Hundreds of millions of dollars, actually. So, um, and this is this is new, right? So, I just had lunch today with a gentleman who's been in the private equity world a lot. He lives in Mexico, but he flew up to Dallas for lunch. He owns a company that does staging and management for Airbnbs, and he's heavily in Mexico, but he's in you know in multiple like four, five, six cities here in the country. And he was talking about how he is also in this finance mastermind group with a bunch of like these you know high value guys. And the, the trend here is these private equity firms 
are showing up at short-term re- short-term rental conferences and they're scouting for operators like me, people who are mm. professional what they're doing. And they're trying to pan the money, be like, hey, we need, we, we need to deploy 30 or $50 million. We want to, they're buying their properties. They're not doing arbitrage, right? So they're, we're trying to buy $50 million worth of homes and have them on the short-term rental market is what they're trying to do. So there's hundreds of millions of dollars. It's a real estate hybrid because they're trying to buy the real estate, but they're trying to get an upsized return. So yeah, it's fun times. So that's, that's actually a big opportunity for people like you who've been in this space for a while. You could literally take your business model and scale it using somebody else's money. I mean, is that something that you're teaching your students uh, as, as an opportunity to be able to do? So here's the pros and cons of my world, which is arbitrage, which is renting. It doesn't take much money to get into arbitrage, right? So to set up a property, if you're going to pay the first month's of rent, maybe, and you get a couple months of rent on the back end for free, you're really only out, only out of pocket a little bit of rent and some furniture. We're talking $6,000 to set up an apartment, right? And so if each key costs about $6,000 to deploy, tell me how you're going to spend $5 million, mm. especially as a small company, right? You, you run into this huge staff bottleneck. You're going to need 100 housekeepers. You're going to need three or four customer service staff minimum on the phones, like being able to handle guest check-ins and stuff full time, right? Always have at least three people on the phones. You're going to have maintenance staff. You're going to have all sorts of stuff. You're going to have your supply chain is going to have to grow. So if somebody wanted to spend $5 million in the arbitrage space, it's going to take a lot of time to pick up those doors and scale it. So I don't think that taking private equity at that level is relevant for what we do. Like I tell my students, like if you have more than $25,000 in cash, you're probably not going to be able to spend it all right away. It's going to take you time to set up four or five doors and learn the game. And then by the time you learn enough to pick up another four or five doors, you probably got your initial investment back through the free rent. So you could take $25,000 and grow at a pretty neck break pace in, in my world doing arbitrage, where if you are buying properties, $25,000 is probably your down payment for a small, small property, not even the furniture. At that yeah. That, that's definitely a big deal. Well, you mentioned the the staffing issues, right? So getting uh, all those different housekeepers, all the different maintenance people. Um, and when you're starting off, it's like six grand to start to to get your first, you know, little apartment building off and rolling. Mm-hmm. But how about finding quality employees and getting them trained up? I mean, you said you had somebody that you were able to finally say, look, here's the keys. You got this. I'm gone for a while. I'm sure that didn't happen overnight. There's something that you had to go through to get there. How do you find good people and train them properly? So this is a long conversation, right? Um, the the girl that took over as CEO, I, I had her within my organization for about three years before she hit that level. Um, and it took a lot of cross training. And at the point that I hired her, we weren't big enough to make her a CEO yet. So thank God, right? She kind of grew with the company. There's a book I recommend by Ram Sharan called The Leadership Pipeline. It talks about basically seven elbows that people go through from being like an accountant or a sales guy to being a manager for the first time, to managing managers, to managing functions, to managing whole regions, and then all the way up to enterprise level. And I think reading that book really helps you kind of see enough of the future that you can kind of plan ahead. Now, hiring, there's trends in hiring too. And that's, that's, a, that's why this becomes such a big topic. I will tell you, for all the entrepreneurs that are like listening to this podcast right now, the biggest thing that generates value for us is we stop running job ads whenever we can because job ads are what we would call active applicants, right? And people are actively going through job ads. They're probably unemployed for a reason. And a lot of them are unemployable. So I will walk my, my tail into a hotel and I will find the person pushing the cart and I'll give them a business card and tell them to call me and I will try to headhunt a housekeeper from a hotel. 
once we have good housekeepers, we've got this rule in the company, which is whenever you hand somebody their first check, if you like them, tell them that you have a referral program and ask them to refer you people and pay them for referrals because good referrals in a referral program will be the cheapest hires you will ever have because running job ads, doing interviews, firing the wrong people because you hired the wrong people. Those are the most expensive hires you'll ever have. So finding a way to access passive applicants and then referrals is, is kind of our sauce for hiring. That's fire right there. That totally makes sense. Look, the person's already doing the job. They're keeping a job. So it's not like they're unemployed for some other reason that you don't know about that's going to creep out of the closet once they actually start working with mm -hmm. you. And you get good quality people to bring other good quality people. That's That yep. makes total sense. Let me ask you about taxes and fees. So anytime you go to a hotel, for example, you go to Vegas, because everybody goes to Vegas, right? You show up to Vegas, you pay for your room, but they always have additional taxes and fees that are part of that hotel chain. It's just, it's just part of that travel industry. Do you guys have to kind of play by those rules as well? Or, or because it's a short-term rental game, it's kind of a different ballgame? Um, no, it's, it's generally the same game. And I'll tell you, I can't actually speak for hotels. Cause when I go to Vegas, the Cosmo gives me everything for free, but they take it off the craps table. So they, <laughs> get, they, give, me, they give me one way or the other. Uh, but, um, Airbnb has sales tax and hotel taxes at the state level that they tip, typically tend to collect on behalf of the operator. Um, they do this just to make it easy. Now, city to city, some cities have a local hotel tax, right? Texas, like Dallas has a hotel occupancy tax. They call it a hot tax. Austin has its own hot tax and uh, Fort Worth actually just ran some legislation to add a hot tax. So now we do have to track our revenues and then pay, you know, pay the man out on the local level, but everything else Airbnb has already tried to like systemize. That makes, that, that makes it a lot easier. Cause yeah, managing all that stuff, it could definitely be a pain in the butt, especially if you don't know you're supposed to be doing that stuff. And yeah. then that bill comes later, later on. I mean, I'm in California and I, I always tell my students when we talk about taxes, do not mess with the state. They're the most gangster ass people that you're going to meet. And they'll come after you. They'll find a way to get the money that's owed to them. Yeah. All right, man. Look, so much fire today on today's episode. I mean, I'm learning so much about this space. You're making me think about like, why am I not doing this? What holds people back from becoming operators like yourself? Um, the things that hold people back is probably the same things that everybody says holds people back when starting a business. Right. Do you, if you remember when you started your first business, how, how many nerves did you have in your gut? Right. You're like, oh, I'm so scared. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So a lot of people talk themselves out of starting a business and they never get into it. And there is definitely a different mindset with being a business owner and being an employee. And like, like obviously the girl who's been running the business when I took the year off, I gave her a salary for a reason. Paying a salary was a strategic choice to give her security over anything else. If I gave that woman a performance based pay, she might have had enough independence to then go leave me and start her own business, right? A salary was a strategic choice for retention at that point. So I think a, a lot of times it's a mindset shift, right? A lot of people are afraid of now taking the risk where they may not make money, right? They may lose money. And I think pe some people are too far away from the concept of independently, like making their own money based on their ability that they never start. And so I would say somebody, if they're, if they're, if they're in a salary job or an hourly job, they should probably take something commission or start a very small e-commerce business and kind of really learn what it feels like to keep what you kill. And at that point, you might have enough confidence to, to go and do it, right? I don't think there's really anything special about this industry that holds people back, aside from maybe some cities have some regulations that don't allow it, but we're still talking about 5 7% of cities. You know, so it's an insignificant thing. 
I think the thing that keeps people from doing this is the same thing that keeps anybody from ever starting a business just the same. All right. What about the other side of it? You start, how do you get yourself out of being the solopreneur and owning a job versus being able to get yourself to the point where you can take off for a year? Well, that book, The Leadership Pipeline, I think is a really good book for anyone who wants a like really expert dissertation on how organizational structure might look like as you move up. Because as you read about these positions, you can also imagine, oh, these positions exist. And you can actually draw an org chart from this book, which is nice. Now, this business needs some housekeepers and the housekeepers need some leadership and you need to learn some good business adages, right? Like one of the most important business adages I've ever heard is continue to inspect what you expect, right? When the boss leaves, no one is checking to make sure the work is done right. And that's when things start to degrade. So those little adages are important. So two books, Ram Charan's Leadership Pipeline, and then The Great Courses makes an audio book called Critical Business Skills for Success. Um, it's about a 34-hour run-through of everything you need to know from accounting, supply chain, to operations. Um, I did a short-term rental focused version of this audiobook, like as a webinar called the seven pillars of SDR, just so that way those attendees could see, oh, these are seven different things like marketing, sales, HR, accounting, and here's how they all apply to short-term rentals, right? Um, and I will say caveat, I teach everything for free on YouTube anyway. So the fact that I did this paid webinar day long thing was because I knew that there was hosts who were already running the business and making money and they wanted a really targeted education on mm -hmm. how to become a business owner. And so, yeah, respecting that there's multiple silos within a company, like accounting matters, sales matters, operations matters, HR matters, having enough respect for all of them that you start to learn enough about them to know where maybe your own shortcomings are and then hire people to, to do that for you. Eventually, um, you'll, you'll get to a point that you work remote, right? You don't have to show up at any of these properties. And I think that's, that's level one automation, right? That's level one freedom. You have housekeepers that go and you have managers that check up on them. And you can work from Bali, you can work from Berlin, you're, you're remote. Eventually, once you've done this work remote thing for a while, you start to see what it is that is still missing for you to shut the phone off, right? Mm. And you start to build the systems that give you the safety net to allow you to shut the phone off. And I don't think there's really a way for me to say do X, Y, Z, and then like do X, Y, Z again, because some people can't even fathom what it's like to be work remote enough to then build the systems for automation. So I would say have faith, build this thing to be remote enough that you don't need to be everywhere at once. And you will start to see the final mile things that you can to just shut your phone off and disappear for a year. Sean, it is clear you have a lot of experience in this space. You shared with us a lot of information. Uh, and I want to make sure people can get a hold of you if they want to learn more from you, if they want to work with you. What can people do to learn more about what you got going on? Mm. So... I've always taught this industry for free for like the last six-ish years on YouTube. My name is Sean Rockyjeech. You type that in um, or you just type in Airbnb and you look for the beard um, is how you're going to find me on YouTube. Um, and then my website, probably scrolling right now, rockyjeech.com. It has all my events and like my mini webinars. So people are current hosts who need to learn about the algorithm or need to learn price at a high level. There's like webinars there. And then, yeah, people can hit me up on Instagram. Uh, I, I'll even check a Facebook DM once in a while, right? So. I think that's the easiest way. Perfect, man. All right, ladies and gents, you heard it. 30 minutes jam-packed information. And is by the way, social, in case you guys are not watching and you're just listening, it's at Airbnb Automated, at Airbnb Automated. So make sure you guys check that out. Sean, again, pure fire today. I learned a lot. Six grand to get started, ladies and gents, in the Midwest, and you can be turning that... Man, it'll make it a lot easier. I'm telling you, those properties out there, 
way more inexpensive, especially if you're listening to this and you're in California thinking, that'll never work here. Let me tell you, Sean is living proof that if you get started, you will figure out a way. He even said on the episode, you don't got to go with 150 properties off the bat. Just get your first couple, get yourself rolling, put your to the grindstone and just get going you'll learn a ton sean thank you very much for coming on the show ladies and gentlemen we'll catch you guys on the next one peace and we're out it's over go home is your business in need of marketing try starting a podcast but not just any podcast podcast like a pro we can show you how to take your business from being invisible to becoming a brand people trust Go to www.businessbros.biz to get started today.